following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, as, uh, as we get started this morning, before I jump into the sermon, I want to comment on uh, yesterday. We were, uh, this past week I was reading with our men's group on Wednesday night, Man Up group, uh, looking at Francis Chan in a book, Crazy Love. And then he talked about, and he uh, said, when did the church uh, become a once-a-week gathering uh, for an hour just to listen to someone speak and then to leave? He said, the church is supposed to be living life together, to be uh, engaged fully within the, the mission of God within the world. And I can honestly say that yesterday was uh, an experience of that uh, for us here and for many of you who were here A great time in the morning of gathering together in the beauty of God's creation uh, with folks from our own church, but with a lot of people from Grace Community Church, with the pastor there, Matthew Palmer, of seeing the body of Christ coming together uh, to serve a common need uh, within our community of going and being uh, with people who uh, still have uh, needs because of the storm. Uh, I was with a group of folks, some that I knew, some that I didn't know, uh, working uh, at, I've mentioned her before, Miss Helen, uh, who um, had a big cedar tree that uh, was messed up and some other things in her yard uh, that needed to come down. And she'd been on the waiting list for a little over three weeks and called this week and just said, would, would love to get it done before Thanksgiving if possible, but I understand if we can't. And Miss Helen suffered from a stroke and she's got some issues that she's facing, but just a, an opportunity to be with her and to ask her if she could and felt up to it to come outside. And uh, she looked at me and she said, now, no pictures, Pastor. And I was like, no, no pictures. Uh, we just prayed together. We held hands there in her front yard right on uh, 278, right across uh, from Harold's Diner. And we prayed uh, together uh, about God's mercy and his grace. Then we came back to the church and uh, got cleaned up and Uh, Many of you read and knew um, Pastor Ben Williams, who had ministered here faithfully for 42 years uh, on this island. I can't imagine 42 years in the same place, uh, ministering faithfully to see um, God's work through generations of people. And uh, the folks at Mount Calvary Baptist uh, asked if we could come together, if they could use our facilities. And we asked them, we said, "Why, why our church? And the response from some of the leadership was simply this. Before the hurricane, we wouldn't have felt comfortable asking you. But because of your love for our community, we felt comfortable that you'd be willing to host this in your church. And it was a celebration uh, yesterday. It it was church on a Saturday. Uh, We were packed to the gills. There were folks everywhere uh, to look up on the stage and to see the variety of ministers uh, here to hear Uh, the stories from Pastor Williams' family and others uh, to hear uh, the sermon uh, preached. And I loved it. They had asked the pastor to be short, and so 50 minutes later he finished up. And I thought, man, you guys don't ever complain about me. uh, uh, So that's long for me. That's short, evidently, for him. Uh, But it was awesome uh, to hear uh, in that and then to be together and then uh, to stay until about 9 o'clock last night where a meal was being uh, had here for family and friends gathering together uh, and being there, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful day. And then to go from that day into this day uh, just shows me 
what God has for us within the body of Christ, uh, of coming together more than just once a week, folks. Uh, we don't want you here throughout the course of the week and involved in different programs so that we can say, hey, we've got a big Wednesday night, or hey, we've got a big women's ministry. We want you to be understanding of the nature of the church as a lifestyle. It is life. It's not an activity. Uh, it's not an event. Church isn't Sunday morning. And so... Um, I hope that you see that and understand that, and I'm excited about our church. I'm excited about what God's uh, doing in the midst of our ministries here and seeing so many of you uh, who are new uh, to our church and folks who are investigating both our church and other churches. I heard a great line yesterday, and I said I had to use it. Uh, It was this. One of the pastors spoke, uh, and he said, folks, when you're considering and looking for a church, he said, you need to find a church. He said, but know this, no church is as bad as you think that it is, and know this, you're not as good as you think you are. And I thought, that's a good perspective to have on that. That would help us get over a lot of stuff that divides us if we realize the church isn't as bad as you think it is. It's full of just busted up, broken people coming together to serve a perfect God, and you're not as good as you think you are in that. And so we come together in light of that. So yesterday, that was a good day. Today, it's a good day. We get to start the day together, then we get to come back and we get to celebrate uh, again as we end the Lord's Day together with worship, with time of community, with decorating God's house for a season of Advent when Christ came into the world. And so I invite you back, uh, not to an event tonight, but just to life together. And so in light of that, let me pray for us as we approach God's Word and ask His blessing on our church ask his blessing on his word. Father, we come now and we thank you for your church. We thank you for the wide variety within the body of Christ. Father, we thank you for the pictures of worship that we've seen even this weekend. From that uh, of dancing in this sanctuary and of, of a choir singing and of your people clapping, and of pastors preaching, to today with singing in a different way, uh, with beauty in a different way, in the same place, worshiping the same God, and how much joy you must take from your people gathering together. It must delight you to see that the power of Christ breaks through all of those things which divide us here in this world, race, wealth, money, education, where we live, what we do for a living, uh, what language we speak. The beauty of the gospel brings us all together, and the power of Christ reminds us that we serve one Savior, we have one hope, and there will be one heaven where all of us will live perfectly together. And so we, we pray that we would live that way even now. Father, we come to your word and all of its perfections and glories today. And we ask that you would teach us as we learn from Daniel, your servant, as we see him faithfully living his life in a foreign land, always looking to the day when things would be made right and new. Would we have such a faith? Would we have such a life? This we pray in your name and to your glory. Amen. We're wrapping up our study of the book of Daniel today. And we're doing this by not going to the last chapter, but by going to one of the middle chapters, uh, looking at Daniel chapter 9. And it's a chapter 
that most people skip over in order to get to verse, uh, roughly verse 24. No one really does much with verses 1 to 23, but I'm going to do just the opposite. We're going to spend all of our time and attention on verses 1 to 23 and not worry about verse 24 and following. Because you see, this passage of Scripture is one that speaks on prayer. It teaches on prayer, and we've been talking about Daniel and an uncompromising life that Daniel had. That beginning as a young boy in his early teens, being pulled away from his family, being pulled away from his culture, being pulled away from everything that he understood, all of his safety. But he then was taken to Babylon where he stood for Christ from the age of an early teen now uh, to his late 80s, even early 90s, some would say. And he lived this uncompromising life. And we ask the question, how did he do it? What were some of the secrets that he had? What were the principles? What were the practices that Daniel had? I think if you studied Daniel, you would see that the primary thing, the primary practice that Daniel had that allowed him to live this uncompromising life, uh, a life of a foreigner within a foreign land, always having a hope uh, of the true life to come when Christ would come. And he was looking forward to that day, even though he may not have fully understood it. But he was looking forward to that day, and he lived this life because he was a man of prayer. Prayer was the heart line for him to God. Prayer was that uh, which, which grounded him, which informed him, which gave him power, uh, which enlightened his thinking, Uh, which did all of these things for Daniel. And so we're going to look at at this section on prayer, and we're going to look at a few things within it, some principles uh, about prayer, and then some parts of prayer, and then just a couple of follow-ups. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9 as we begin uh, to read. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrongly and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame." As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. 
He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers, who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant And to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God from the holy hill, uh, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. There really is no better way to conclude our study of Daniel than to conclude with looking at prayer, the very heartbeat, the very life of Daniel. And it's interesting that so many people have studied Daniel and have been fascinated with the prophecies, been fascinated with all uh, of the signs and wonders and all of the numbers and all of those things. And they say, oh, dare to be like Daniel, dare to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, When you're facing a fiery furnace, when you're uh, facing a lion's den, when you are in this difficult place, be like these young men, dare to live like them. But I can't remember ever hearing somebody say, the way to most be like them is to be a person of prayer. To be a person who spends hours of their given day kneeling before God, facing, at least for them, towards Jerusalem in the time of the prayers and praying to the Lord. You see, these guys were busy. They were government officials. Daniel was leading, by and large, the country. It's not like he had this just lifestyle of ease and retirement. He was busy. But yet in the midst of his busyness, in the midst of his vocation, in the midst of his work, 
he recognized that he can do nothing. He cannot accomplish the ultimate task for which God designed him and set him in Babylon without constant and regular prayer to this God, his Father, his Creator, his Redeemer. And so with that in mind, I want us to consider prayer this morning. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at three principles of prayer. Three principles of prayer. Then we're going to look uh, at three parts of prayer and then conclude with just a couple of thoughts. But the principles behind prayer, the principles that should inform your prayer life, the first uh, should be this. Let Scripture drive your prayers. Let Scripture inform your prayer life. Daniel, it says here in the beginning, uh, was reading the Scriptures. It it says that uh, in verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must come to pass. He'd been reading the scrolls of Jeremiah. He'd been reading God's word. Interesting here that even with Daniel, there was a codified canon of Scripture. There was something that said, this is the word of God, and it informs, it, it shows, it gives us an understanding. And what we learn by that within our prayer life is this, as we let Scripture drive our prayers, uh, is that God still speaks to his people through his word. That we've become a culture of extemporaneous thought, a a culture uh, of extemporaneous expression and feeling. And the reality is it's through God's word that that informs and drives and directs our prayer life. That we understand God and we understand our condition so well through his word that it informs how we pray. Daniel knew that. And so he let scripture drive his prayers. That's why it's so very important to be a person of the book, a person who knows the Scriptures. Not simply to know it for knowledge's sake, but to know it so that you can put that into action within our lives. So the first principle of prayer is to allow Scripture to inform or to drive your prayers. The second principle of Scripture, uh, or principle of prayer, is this, that we have to understand the greater context of our lives in covenant with God in order to pray. To understand the greater context, the greater covenant. The language that Daniel uses all throughout uh, this time of prayer is covenant theology. If I was, let me just ask you an honest question. If I was to come to you and say, I need you to explain to me covenant theology, how many of you honestly could say you could give a pretty good answer to what covenant theology is? A few of you. All of Scripture is covenant theology. Daniel was informed by his understanding of the covenant, a covenant that God made with Abraham, a covenant that God made with even Christ himself in the garden, which said that there's going to be enmity between you, but you're going to win in the end. There's going to be a seed that comes. And then when Abraham, by the way, in the midst of this covenant-making session, was sound asleep, That God moved by way of Christ through uh, the covenant symbols of the torn apart and bloodied sacrifice. And basically God made this promise. And it was seen again in Leviticus and it was seen again throughout the course of the Old Testament. That if you break your covenants to me, you will be split and bloodied just like these things. 
that I promise to be your God, you promise to be my people, and we are going to have blessings and we're going to have curses within this relationship. The blessings come by obedience to me. Curses come by disobedience to me. That he is the sovereign. He is the one who's on top. He gets to make the rules. We're the vassals. We're the ones under. And so we have to say as the defeated people or as the weaker part of the covenant, okay, we're in. And the beauty and the mystery and the picture of why Abraham was asleep and that there was that burning pot that came through and that fire that went through. Do you understand the significance of that? Have you studied it enough to recognize this? It was as if God was saying to Abraham, you can never obey these things perfectly, that I'm going to have to send my own son, my own self, and that he'll be split just like these bulls, that his blood will be spilled just like these doves, that he will have to be the sacrificial lamb on your behalf, the paschal lamb who comes and takes away the sin, because in order for me to keep this covenant and to be faithful to this covenant, blood has to be spilled, and that may sound archaic and caveman-esque, but it's incredibly biblical. And so do you understand this picture of a covenant, of what God was saying in this, to recognize within our prayers that Christ is the consummation of all of these covenant works, that Christ was the one who comes now and he says within himself, now I've perfectly fulfilled the covenant. Believe in me and you gain all of the benefits of the covenant through my sacrificial work, not through yours. Because guess what? You're going to mess up. Would you agree with that? We prove that point daily, multiple times a day. And so if it was based on us, then we'd be utterly lost. But because Christ, the Messiah, is the coming one who fulfills the covenant, all of the pictures of Scripture are about covenant theology. It informs our prayers within this way. If you want a good book to read to learn a bit about covenant theology, it's not so daunting. It's actually beautiful. And I would hope that you would study these things. It's a book called Designed for Dignity. Designed for Dignity. Richard Pratt, a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, wrote it. It's a very good treatment of this matter. And I would encourage you to read it. So a principle of prayer, let Scripture drive your prayers. Then almost like a subset of that, uh, understanding within this scripture, the covenant theology, the beauty of covenant informs your prayers because you look and you see God's promise to be a faithful covenant-keeping God. And then the third principle that we see is this, God's sovereignty prompts our prayers, it doesn't block our prayers or keep us from praying. God's sovereignty prompts our prayers. The reason I say this is Daniel is reading within Jeremiah. And what does he learn within Jeremiah? He learns, oh, God was going to have the people out of Jerusalem for 70 years. And Daniel, being the wise man and sage that he is, he calculated and figured out, we're at that time. It's 70 years-ish. You start doing the numbers, it's, it's right at it. And you would also know that this, in the beginning of the first year of Darius, you would know that the people of Jerusalem were... Uh, were, or the people of Israel were sent back to Jerusalem from Babylon. And so it's interesting, God's sovereign plan for 70 years that the people would then go back to Jerusalem at the end of 70 years didn't cause Daniel not to pray, it prompted him to pray. Most people say this, if God is sovereign, why pray? 
If God is sovereign over all things, uh, then why in the world should I pray? If God's sovereign over salvation, if God's sovereign over all of the acts uh, of providence, all the acts of creation, then why in the world should I pray? I'm just going to sit back and let God be God. Daniel said this, it is precisely because God is sovereign that I pray. Because I know God said that he would act, I'm going to plead and beg for God to act upon his promises and upon his mercy and upon his sovereign plan. God's sovereignty leads us to engagement, not to disengagement. For many of you coming from different backgrounds, that word sovereignty is just a horrible word. Oh, Bill, we're this, and it's all of these things. But the beauty in Scripture is that the saints never wrestled with God's sovereignty in the way that a modern American Westerner wrestles with it. They saw it as beautiful. They saw it as prompting human interaction and action versus prompting inaction and sitting to the side. So principles of prayer that we learn simply in this, let the Scripture drive your prayers, reading the Scriptures to know and to inform your prayers. Understand the greater covenant, the beauty of the covenant that God has given to us in Christ and know that God's sovereignty prompts us to pray. So then you say, okay, great, we're going to pray. Well, how do we pray? We're going to look, there's all kinds of formulas for prayer. We're just simply going to look at some of the parts of the prayer that Daniel had. And there are three. There's invocation, there's confession, and there's petition. There's invocation, there's confession, And there's petition. Uh, Daniel came to the Lord. Then in verse 3, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy and with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, covenant language. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled against the covenant. Turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants. O Lord, to the Lord, verse 7, belongs righteousness. To you belongs righteousness. To us, Lord, open shame. And he goes and he begins to speak in this way of invocation. Invoking the presence of God. Recognizing to whom he is speaking. So the first principle of prayer should be this for us. Know to whom you're speaking. That's an important thing, isn't it? It, it changes, it informs how you engage them. I think I've told you the story. When I first moved to South Carolina, I was at a sporting clays event. It's, uh, it had a big farm uh, called High Cotton outside of Charlotte, in, or outside of Rock Hill in Chester County. And there's hundreds of folks there shooting guns and eating barbecue, and it's a glorious time uh, in the end of August. And I'm standing there, and I'm new, and I'm trying to get to know people as one of the new pastors of the church, and this was sponsored by some men in our church. And I'm standing there, and one of the men comes up to me with another fellow who I'd never seen before, and he said, Bill, I'd like you to meet Mark Sanford. And I said, hey, Mark, how are you? He goes, well, I'm well, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great. What brings you here? He goes, I'm just coming out to enjoy the day. Well, I said, do you shoot? He goes, no, I don't shoot much. I said, well, at least there's some good barbecue, and maybe you can pick up a gun and see what you can do. And he goes, well, I appreciate that. And then we talked a little bit, and I said that we went, I went to Presbyterian College. He goes, oh, I'm familiar with Presbyterian College, and talked to him a little bit. And then he walked off. My friend came back to me. He said, that was our governor. I said, well, that would have been nice for you to have told me 
who I was speaking to. Because I would have said, Mr. Governor. I would have, I may not have changed the content of my, but I would not have been so flippant because of an office, not necessarily because of the man. It's the same way within prayer. Know to whom you're talking. He is our Father. He is our Daddy. He is that one who we have deep and profound intimacy with. But He is the God who reigns. He is the one for whom all righteousness is set. To whom even the created beings who have no sin cover their eyes. For they say we who are perfect cannot even look upon the perfections of this one. Because he is so great that he is the one who is surrounded in inapproachable light. That he is the one that peals of lightning and thunder come from his throne. That when he speaks, Daniel said, it was like the voice of thousands who spoke. Consider to whom you're speaking when you pray. And Daniel enters in and he begins this way. Oh God, most majestic. The God who created all things. Within your sight, I am nothing, but yet you still know me. God, you are so incredible. He begins with this invocation. He begins with this adoration. And it's not just to get to his petition. It's to stay there. And in the middle of this adoration, to know who he is as well. And in this invocation, he speaks of this covenant, faithful God And he uses a word within the language of this covenant, a word called chesed in the Hebrew. And a word that is translated most times faithful. But it really should be translated covenant faithfulness. It is God's affection towards us that leads to his faithfulness. That Daniel speaks of this God who is rich in mercy. He comes... And because he's been informed by the Scriptures, he knows how to address the one to whom he speaks. He uses biblical language. He uses language that brings honor and glory to this one. Folks, this isn't any different from human relationship. A father, when speaking to his children and the child decides to sass off a little bit, The mother who's speaking to her children and the child decides to sass off no matter the age of the child needs to be reminded, do not forget to whom you are speaking. And it is not because I brought you into this world and I can take you out. It is because I am your father. And because I'm your father, because I'm your mother, because I'm your boss, uh, because I outrank you, whatever it is, you will speak to me in a different way. And we hate that, don't we? In our egalitarian culture where everybody is equal and everybody's on the same footing, this kind of thought drives us crazy. And some of you are going, oh, I don't want to approach God that way. I want to just be huggy-feely with him. He's my tender daddy. Well, he is your tender father only because he's the majestic God who destroyed your elder brother Christ on your behalf so that his justice could become mercy, love, and grace, and affection towards you. Don't forget the fullness of who he is. It informs how we sing. You'll sing differently if you recognize that the audience is this great God. You'll sing with all that you are. You'll approach him with all that you are because of who he is, this invocation 
this adoration of our prayer. Which then leads Daniel to this whole section of confession. That he begins, he goes, all of Israel, verse 11, has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. The curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, for under the whole of heaven, nothing's been done like this. That your people, your people have sinned. So prayer, when we look and consider the beauty of who God is, leads us naturally to consider us in relationship to him. And what we find in our relationship to him is that we're imperfect in that relationship. Repentance, you see, that leads us to recognizing honestly our sins and faults. I joked with you earlier and said it's not easy to admit our faults. It's just not and all it takes is that much of a prompting to make you turn and point to somebody else. It can be your spouse, it can be your child, it can be your sibling, it can be somebody at school. Something happens to you and you know that you've got a part to play in this thing, but all you're going to do is you're going to focus on the other person and go, yeah, but you, 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 you. And then everything in you is saying, yeah, but own your stuff. And you're like, I'm not going to own my stuff. I can't own my stuff because if I own my stuff, then I'll be seen wrong. I'll be seen as weak and I cannot be seen wrong and I cannot be seen as weak. Therefore, I'm going to in strength stand my ground. And I will not admit, I cannot admit, because if I admit it, it will crush me. It will crush me. So in the middle of this confession, you have to remember something. Do not forget God's grace. Do not forget the magnitude of God's mercy, his covenant, faithful mercy to you in Christ. He must be so. He has to be merciful for sinful people to have any hope. And so if you're having trouble acknowledging your sinfulness, acknowledging your brokenness, acknowledging your faults, you have a small view of God's grace. Because if you had a larger view of God's grace, you would pray honestly more. Small prayers expose a small view of God. You see, we have to consider our doing. Look at verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and rules. Look and consider this doing that we, when we come to confession, that we've done wrong, that our actions have been wrong, that we have a defiance that we stand there with arms crossed, we don't like rules, that we have a defection, that we've turned from God, that we've done wrong. There's a defiance, there's a defection, and there's a deafness, and we haven't listened to you. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants. And so as you're praying, consider even those four Ds. What have you done What within your doing is defiance? What within your doing is defection towards another God, another rule, and a deafness? And recognize within our confession what one writer called the great omission. Look at verse 13 and 14. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. 
turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. We refuse to turn away. That in the midst of confession, though, confession means turning. It doesn't simply mean confessing. Repentance means turning away from that thing. It doesn't simply mean I did it wrong, but guess what? I'm going to do it wrong tomorrow. It has within it a sense of saying that we are going to be changed, but the people here that Daniel was speaking of, I hope are not us, because the people here were unbroken, they were unchanged, and they were generally unrepentant. An old southern pastor used to say, I think I've, you've heard it before, he said it to some teenage boys on a Saturday. Boys, don't go out and sow your wild oats on Saturday night and come to church and pray for crop failure. Don't go out thinking that you're going to do whatever you're going to do and then come to church and say, hey, I'm sorry for what I did last night. That's not a broken spirit. That's not a contrite heart. That's not one who understands to whom they are speaking or to whom they are relating. That is one who says this, I'm in control of my life. I'm the captain of my ship. I can do as I want to do. And God, I'd really like it if you'd forgive me, but if you don't, that's okay. It would make me feel a little bit better this week. It would assuage some of the guilt that I have and some of my conscience. But at the end of the day, I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. Repentance leads to a brokenness, to a change. And then the final thing within uh, the prayer is petition. Verses 15 to 19. And you see within his petition, most of us shoot right to petition. And then when we get to petition, we do petition wrong, by the way. For within this petition is two parts. There's restoration and reputation. There's restoration and reputation. Most of us stick with restoration. God, get us back to Jerusalem. God, promise us, restore us, take care of this problem, make things right again, get me out of this bad situation. God, I promise uh, that if you do your part, I'll never drink again, I'll never smoke again, I'll never date again, I'll never speed again, I'll never do this again, I'll never do that again, but just restore my life. Just get me out of this situation. And that's a part of prayer. That's a part of it is this petition. Daniel says, God, would you make all things right? Would you deliver me? But it wasn't his primary concern. It was his secondary concern. His primary concern was verses 16 to 19. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers. Jerusalem, your people, have become a byword among all who are around. He's very honest with the situation. We've made a mess of things, God. And we want you to restore Jerusalem. We want you to restore these things. Now, therefore, O God, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to my pleas for mercy for your own sake. For your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations, that the city that is called by your name For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. He goes staccato. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. He says this, 
that within the midst of our petition, our petition should come within an understanding that it's for the sake of God's name. That when we pray and we struggle, any of you struggling with anything, have any of you committed a sin more than once, the same one? And your prayer is, God, I want you to stop me from doing this. God, help me to get out of this addiction, out of this sin pattern, out of this besetting sin, out of this thing. But do you pray this way? God, would you do that, not for my sake, but your name's sake? Would you change my life so much that your name is glorified and honored within the world because people can see that I've been changed? Lord, would you restore my marriage to health that your name would be glorified because this marriage that is a mess and doesn't bring you honor and glory would bring you honor and glory. Lord, would you work in my child's life? Would you do a profound work because through the conversion and the love that my child would have, it would bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, would you forgive our church for the sins of our church, not that we would be a great church, but for the reputation of your name. Father, would you convert my neighbor who hates you, my neighbor who doesn't know you? Would you move within them by your sovereign will? Would you change their heart that you would gain all the glory in that? Do you see the difference? He says, it's not because of me or even my motivation to do this, but it's because I want his name to be great. I don't pray that way very often. And I imagine some of you may not either. But in study... And in preparing for this, it has changed how I'm praying to God. It has changed how I approach my wife, even when we have bad days, and we do, by the way. To say, God, I want my marriage to sing. I want my marriage to be healthy. I want to love Lisa well so that you would be honored. Not that I would be seen as a great husband and great dad, but that your name would be magnified. It takes me somewhat out of the equation. And gives all the glory and honor to the one who deserves it. So our petition, and we should petition God to move. God, would you heal my friend's cancer? Would you do this so that you would gain all the glory and honor? And then finally, in conclusion, a couple of quick thoughts. When it switches down and Gabriel comes into the picture, look at what he says. Verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Know this, friends. God comes near to you because you are greatly loved. Recognize that Gabriel, the servant of God, the angel, the archangel, came into Daniel's presence, and the first thing he said was not about the 70 weeks. It wasn't about all the creative, cool stuff that's going to go on in just a second. But he said this, Daniel, I want you to know something. You are deeply and profoundly loved by God. And you are uniquely gifted with insight. Now use your giftedness and insight. We don't have time to go into it. But he says that he's given him a divine gift. And this divine gift should never be meant to stifle our human effort. He says, now take these gifts and use them. Consider the word and understand the vision. One pastor put it this way, gifts of God are not excuses for sloth, but demands for sweat. God is saying this, I have loved you and I have gifted you. Now go about the business that I've given you to do. Folks, God's called us to action. He's called us to be people of prayer, to use the insights that we gain, the love that we have, 
to be powerful witnesses for him within this world. Daniel teaches us a lot of an uncompromising faith, of living a life that's honoring to the Lord. Let's pray.